Thought somebody said something. I've been called a lot of things in my life. Um, somebody told me one time I was dumb as an ox. A couple of other people told me I was a moron. So I figured that that's an oxymoron. <laughs> an oxymoron, what that means is something that is acutely silly. It means... Um, in our common vernacular, a figure of speech in which the opposite or contradictory ideas or terms are combined, like a thunderous silence or sweet sorrow or bittersweet. And I want to talk to us um, a little bit today about another one of these, a couple of them. Number one, uh, dying to live, dying to live. And the second one is, goes along with it, the cross within. And so uh, we want to start in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27. This is right after they're at uh, Caesarea Philippi up in the northern part of Galilee, the headwaters of the Jordan River. Big city there. Jesus and the disciples are up there to, to kind of take a break. And during that, they begin to talk, and um, John the Baptist had recently been killed. They were grieving over that. And in the midst of that, um, there was a tremendous revelation from God that was given to the disciples. Now, they all knew that Jesus was different than anyone they had ever met before. They all knew that. And they knew that there was a power there and there was an authority there that no one else had. And he could give them what no one else could ever give them. They knew those things. They thought he was a prophet. They knew he was a great man of God. But it's at Caesarea Philippi that God first began to reveal to them he's more than that, all of that, and much more. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And that first was revealed to Peter as they're there at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus gives a blessing to Peter. He says, this is not your own idea. You didn't figure this out on your own. It was a direct revelation of God to you. And immediately, as soon as they began to recognize who Jesus was, it's at that point he began talking about the cross and dying. Immediately, with the revelation of who Christ is, comes the necessity of his coming, the death on the cross. Now, Peter thought that was bad news. And so he goes very quickly in uh, just a couple of sentences there from this tremendous... This tremendous revelation from who God is to something rising up within him saying, Lord, uh, that will never happen to you. Not dying for us. Um, That'll never happen. And he goes immediately from being blessed by Christ to being rebuked by Christ. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're one now who is opposing the work of God. Because you have in things, you have in mind not the things of, of men, of God, but the things of men. 
So that was bad enough, wasn't it? Messiah's come, we realize who he is. First thing he tells us is, I'm going to die, I'm going to leave you. But it, it gets worse. <laughs> then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So it goes from this great revelation of God, God participating active, uh, redemptively in our history. He's come to do what we can never do for ourselves. And he's come with this great revelation of who God is, God working in and among his people. And immediately, he starts talking about death and dying for himself. Because your redemption and my redemption can only come at a cost. But he doesn't stop there. He says, if you're going to walk with me, there'll be a cross for you. So he puts it this way. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, this is the dying to live. And there's a difference in dying and dying to live. What he says is, whoever loses his life for Christ's sake, those are the ones who find it. Everybody else just dies. Now we all die because we've all sinned and that's the consequences of sin. And God made that clear right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He told them, if you sin, you will die. And that's true. God is true in everything that he says. And so Hebrews says it's appointed unto man to die, but then comes the judgment. There will be an accounting. We will all individually stand before the throne of God. And so he says if we live, if we give up our life, take up our cross in this life, and give our life for Christ, then we will find what life is truly all about. Then we will find the life that never dies. And that's why Jesus came. And then he asks the question, and it's a good question. It's one that we're all familiar with, but one we need to remember. Um, sometimes we get so close to the scripture, we forget the radical impact that these words had when they're freshly spoken. And as we come reading the scripture, we ask that the Holy Spirit will make it alive, that we would have the impact in our lives that these words had for those original disciples. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So what are you giving in exchange for your soul? Esau threw away his inheritance, his birthright, everything that was important and valuable to him for a piece of bean soup. And we think, what a stupid, foolish man. And yet, we throw ours away for a lot less, don't we? Well, somebody over there, they may look at me funny. 
Or somebody may some, say something about me. Are we really, really willing to give our soul for that? So the Lord invites us to die in order to live, to die to self, um, to give up the lies that this world offers for the truth that can set us free. Now there's a way uh, that we need to understand here and the thing is, what does it mean to take up our cross and follow Jesus? What does that mean? A lot of times we interpret that as persecution, you know, something somebody else does to us. And there's that aspect to it. But there's more to that. I want to ask us as Christian people, how deep are we willing to go? How deep are we willing to allow Christ to work within us to make us like himself? A couple of chapters later, in Matthew chapter 18... Peter again comes to Jesus and he has a question. And um, it's a good question. Lord, how often will my brother continue to sin against me and I forgive him? Now it's one thing for somebody to sin against you and you forgive them, but then they do it again. And it may be the same thing. And then they do it again. How long do we have, to, how long do we do that? You know, that's hard. And we, we interpret this in our relationship with each other. Now let me ask you, as I ask myself, how many times do I go to Christ and confess the same sin over and over and over again? How many times? Mm, yeah. And does God forgive us when we come in repentance, confessing with a godly sorrow? Every time. But we always interpret these things on what other people have done to me, not what I have done to other people, and especially not what I am doing to God. Because every time we sin against another person, we first of all sin against God. It's God's law that's being broken when we sin against another person. Um, God made this clear even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, he talks about it a couple of times in Leviticus. When any man sins against God and does evil to his neighbor, he got the priorities right from the beginning. God says, whenever you sin against God by doing this to another person, and so David in Psalm 51 understood that, didn't he? When he goes to repent of adultery and murder and deceitfulness and cover-up and lying, abuse of power, um, dragging the name of God in the dirt. When he comes before God, first thing he confesses is, Lord, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned and done what is evil, wicked in your sight. So the answer that Jesus gives, um, Peter says, well, do I have to, as many as seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. He's not talking, to, what he's telling Peter is, it's not about math. 
It's not about the math. Seven's a perfect number, right? 70 times seven. So you keep on doing it as long as it's necessary. So it's not about math. He um, told a parable that goes with this. He says, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And again, make no mistake, there will be a settling of accounts. And so he found this guy who owed him 10,000 talents of money. So a talent is worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. Did you get that? One talent, 20 years wages for a laborer. This guy owed him 10000 That's a lot. He couldn't pay, so the master ordered that he, his wife, his children all be sold as slaves. And he stays there until all the payment is made. The servant falls on his knees, crying out to him, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Out of pity, compassion, mercy, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't say, You don't have to pay it today. What he said is, We will render the account zero. You owe nothing. Wow. Talk about a weight a burden lifted off of you. So what did he do with his new gained freedom and independence? He went and he found a guy who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about one day's wage. And he seized him by the throat and began to choke him saying, you need to pay me what you owe. And this guy fell down and he said, have patience with me and I will pay you. But this guy refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Well, the other servants looked at that and said, what a hard-hearted, what a calloused man this is. And they went and told the king. So the king calls the first man in and he said, I forgave you all that great debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So that's a pretty strict story. But now Jesus makes it worse. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Not just saying the words and keeping the attitude from your heart. So I ask myself, and I'll ask you, how much has God forgiven you? How much are we forgiving those around us? So how often should I forgive my brother when he keeps sinning? So forgiveness, again, it's not a matter of numbers. It's a fundamental attitude to people and to oneself which struggles to prevent the long-term resentment from building up at all. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews calls a root of bitterness. And if we let it take root, it will spring up. And Hebrews says many will be defiled by roots of bitterness in us. Because a bitter person, that's what, they, that's what they, they spread bitterness all around them. Just like a peaceful person spreads peace all around them. And you can go into a home or into a, a meeting or into an institution and you'll know if there's peace there or not without anybody ever saying anything. They know. Because it's a spirit that's there because of who you are and what's going on. This is where the real pain lies in the cross within. It's not the pain from the real or imaginary injury. It's the pain of forgiveness. This is taking up the cross that Jesus was talking about. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross? It was for forgiveness for you and for me. That's why he went. So when we talk about the cross, we're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about redemption. We're talking about God setting us free and redeeming us back into right relationship with him. So when we talk about cross, it's not persecution. It's about forgiveness. It's about letting go um, of attitudes and long-term resentments. Hebrews tells us it's not a light thing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. And it's quoted in Hebrews 9.22 in the New Testament. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whose blood? Whose blood? For your redemption and mine wasn't my sin, my blood that was shed. Wasn't your blood that's shed. Without the shedding of blood, though, there is no forgiveness. It's the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ that forgives your sin and mine. But it goes beyond that. Jesus said there's crosses that we have to pick up and carry, and we all have them. Well, there is a point where we die to the anger, the hurt, the bitterness, the resentment, the replaying of the tape over and over again in the mind that keeps these things fresh and the, and the wound uh, festering and keeping it from being healed. So there's a cross for the one doing the forgiving. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice offered once for all, but we personally and individually, in the words of Peter, must follow in his steps. Do you ever cut your feet on something? Um, so I was in high school. My mom and dad and I went fishing one day. We had a, a small 14-foot boat, but we put in down by one of the bays. And uh, I was barefoot, so I was launching the boat. So I was trucking through the water and pushing the boat out deep enough to where I jumped in. The water was cold. It's salt water. I didn't feel anything. Got in the boat, looked down, and there was pools of blood. And uh, I forgot 
I didn't forget again, but I forgot. <laughs> Barnacles are growing all on that boat ramp. And they sliced my feet to ribbons. And everywhere I stepped, I left a trail, a blood trail. And uh, when we follow Jesus, that's what we're following. The trail of blood from the wound prints in his feet. So there's a cost to that. And Christ has called us to follow in his steps Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Are we? Have we taken up the cross of forgiveness for the people who have offended us? Um, If that offense is crucified, that means it has no power over us anymore. In Philippians... Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul talks about becoming like Christ in his death. So the crucifixion of Jesus was already an accomplished fact in the heart of Jesus. He had already died in Gethsemane before he ever picked up the cross. It was in Gethsemane that the real crisis occurred. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you, you, writing to the church, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, empty ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's the one that we are to follow. So the cross that Jesus picked up began there in Gethsemane. The death he died began when he's praying in Gethsemane, if possible, Holy Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was the beginning of the cross. For us, the cross within is the forgiving of others. And it comes by the deliberate putting aside of the hard reaction, the retaliation, the cold and cutting words that we could so enjoy saying. This is the forgiveness no one ever sees because it has to be deep inside, right alongside the original hurt. So the cross comes in at the point of the hurt. It is a violent forgiveness. And forgiveness is always violent, isn't it? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But God sees that transaction. And the way it's supposed to work is you don't make a show of that. That's inside. And that's where the death occurs. And when that happens... 
There's freedom. There's freedom. We are set free from the bondage of someone else's sin. So in our resentment and in our bitterness, we become slaves of someone else's sin. Paul writes and he says, don't be partakers, don't participate in another person's sin. That person's having a bad day. Why should it steal my joy, my peace? That person has a real problem there. But why should it direct the direction of my day and how I respond to other people? Why am I held bound by their sin? But we do that. We let that happen. We participate in their sin. They do something, say something, act in a way real or imagined, and oftentimes we misinterpret each other. And we make choices. But God sees, and we talk about transfiguration and transformation, but that comes at a price. It's not an easy thing to change anything, is it? We are creatures of habit. Take one of your negative habits and try to change one. That's hard. That's why Paul talks about dying every day. This is, the, this is the real cross that we must bear, the denial of self. This is what it means of taking up our cross and following Jesus. This is a call to our own personal Calvary. And re, any refusal to forgive in me damages me more than it hurts the offender. Because it's what's inside of us where the death is taking place. So we can put those things on the cross and we can die in order to live or we can hang on to those things and just die. So the real pain is the cross inside, the pain of rejection, the hate, the hurt, and of forgiving those who have caused it. And that's, I think, what Jesus is talking about is if you want to walk with Christ, we have to walk the way he did, taking up the sins of others and putting that to death. That's what it really means for Christian people to bear one another's burdens. It's not like I'm trying to carry this heavy table and need somebody to help me. That's, that, that's true. But a heavier burden is what's inside of me. And if I've sinned against you, you can set yourself free and you can set me free through forgiveness. And if you don't forgive, it affects me, but it affects you more. So that's basically what Jesus is telling us. We can die in order to live, but it's this cross within that we must bear on a daily basis as we walk with one another. So as we come to communion today, there was a question. It's a good question. It comes from somebody who is opposed to Christ. And oftentimes, as you read through the Gospels, some of the best questions 
that really get to the point, it comes from people who are violently opposed to, to who Christ is and for who you are. They ask good questions, man. They ask the questions that you and I should be asking, but we don't. And so they, God uses them as a goad to, to poke us a little bit and say, look, this is the real question that you're afraid to ask. They're asking it. They need an answer. In Mark chapter 2, there's a paralyzed man. And four of his friends bring him to Jesus. They have to cut a hole in the roof. You know the story. Let him down. And Jesus sees their faith. He goes to the paralyzed man and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. What an awesome thing. Yeah, a little bit embarrassing. This is public. A lot of people around. You know, be like the Lord coming up to you in the midst of a huge crowd and he says to you, calls you by name and says, your sins are forgiven. Hey, well, don't tell everybody I'm a sinner. <laughs> of course, they already know, but, you know, we get embarrassed by that. So, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. They didn't say a thing. It's in the heart, and it's in the heart that God looks. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. And here's the question. It's a question that you and I need to answer as well. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus looks at you and me and he says, you need to forgive each other. Hmm. How can we do that? Only God can forgive sins. And the answer is, we can't. It's only when we are in Christ and Christ is in us that we can forgive sins. I can't forgive anybody's sins. I can't forgive my own. But Christ in me can. Uh, there's nothing automatic about that. Christ in you means that he'll live his life through you. This is what it means. These are, this is the real key to the kingdom. You know, back in, in Matthew 16, when Peter said, you're the Christ, Jesus said, you're, yeah, that's who I am. This is who you are. Your name is Peter, because his name was Simon. You're going to be called Peter. Uh, so he knew who Jesus was, and Jesus says, yeah, that's true, but I know who you are too. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever you forgive is forgiven. Whatever you hold on to will be held on to. Because Christ is in you. So we say, well, that was Peter. But he didn't stop there, did he? In Matthew 18, he talks to the whole group. All the disciples. And the, the pronouns are plural. 
Truly I say to you, all of you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is why he condemned the Pharisees and the scribes because they bound heavy burdens on people around them. This is the law and you've broken the law. You have sinned, but they don't lift one finger to help them. They did not offer them a way of forgiveness. Jesus did. Jesus does. So we can be like the Pharisees and the scribes and point fingers and condemn everybody else and we bring condemnation upon ourselves and we die because that's what unforgiveness does. Or we can allow the Lord to forgive us our sins. We receive him into our hearts and lives and then and only then are we in a position to be able to forgive anybody else. But if Christ is in our hearts, he would tell you and me, freely you have received. Freely give. This man owed 10,000 talents. Each one, 20 years labor. And he forgave it all. But someone who harmed him, one day's wage. And he refused to forgive. So where are we in that parable? Where are we? Christ comes to set us free. In John 8, he's talking to the Jews who believed him. He said, if you, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's talking to people who believe him. Okay? Talking to people like us. And he says, if... It's a conditional clause. If you abide in me, if your word is alive and active in your life, if you are living it out, then you know the truth. And when you know the truth, that's when you begin to experience the freedom. It's not about what's in here. It's what's in your heart and what you are living out on a day-by-day -day basis. If you abide in in my word, and my word lives in you. Then you know the truth. And that's freedom. And that's life. And that's peace. And that's security. And that's hope. And that's the future for us. That's possible because of what Christ did on the cross for us. It all begins with the cross of Christ but it extends to the cross within your heart and mine. So Jesus invites us to come and participate. On the night that he was betrayed, people were sinning against him. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, Each of you take, this is my body, it is broken for you. After supper, he also took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he, he blessed it. It's a cup of blessing. He gave it to his disciples and said, Each of you drink from this cup. This cup is a new covenant, a new testament in my blood. It's shed for you and for many. It is for the forgiveness of sins. The sins that have been committed against us, 
but more importantly, the sins we have committed against God and other people. And so he invites us to the communion of the crucified. So that's the invitation that comes this morning. So will those who are serving communion please come forward?